three serious disasters, When I left the psionic beam with you, Brigadier, I said it was only to be used in an emergency. This is an emergency. Oh, an emergency? Huh. About time the people who run this planet of yours realize that to be dependent upon a mineral slime just doesn't make sense. Do you want a jelly baby? It's February 6th. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. Uh, hi, Chip. Uh, hi, Alyssa. Uh, aren't we supposed to open this up with news? Uh, well, we've got one thing. Okay, go. The BBC, in advance of the worldwide showcase, has described the 13th Doctor as a super smart force of nature. And that's all the news that we have. Okay, thanks everybody. We'll 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 see you next week, I guess. <laughs> Wait, no, actually we do have things to talk about today. That's right. We are continuing our weekly run of the doctors, one at a time, all the way up to the 13th doctor, Jody Whitaker, and we're just going to launch right into our conversation about the 4th doctor. We're joined today by comedian and writer and contributor to Sci-Fi Fangirls, our friend Riley Silverman. Hi, Riley. Hi. How are you doing? I I am good. I am excited to learn that the Doctor will be a brilliant force of nature. I think that's really good to be aware of it. So. Yeah, and super smart too, because that's never yeah. been that's never been anything with the previous Doctors. I I've heard they might like put it out there that she's a time traveler. That's breaking yeah. news. That is brand new information. Yeah, and get this. She has two hearts. No. Yeah, yeah, both of them. Oh <sighs> my god. But you know there's going to be like a million shirts out there that just say super smart force of nature like in a week. Like just going to I'm yeah, <laughs> like every, every fan site's going to have their force of nature t-shirt. But I understand you want me to talk about a different doctor today. It's not 13 or 12. Yeah, let's, yes. we're, we're going numerically much lower this time around. And it's not a controversial statement to say that the fourth Doctor, for many people, basically is Doctor Who. Yes, he consistently tops fan polls. He is uh, still one of the longest serving Doctors to play the role. He is, for many people, the iconic formative Doctor, the one that they will always remember that they will think of first when they think of Doctor Who. And he still has a very outsized presence in the minds of all Doctor Who fans. His presence only just barely beneath the full force of his voice because let's uh-huh. let's be real about like 50% of the reasons he is so iconic as the doctors cuz he just really has the voice to match it. You might call his voice indomitable. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so Riley, we understand that you are a bit of a newcomer to Fourth Doctor fandom. So how did you get into the Fourth Doctor and tell us why you love him so much? So I used to have a podcast where the whole idea of the podcast was we were working our way through the entirety of Classic Who, episode, a story by story. And my my co-host and I had a bit of a falling out, and so we ended the show right around the end of The Third Doctor. And so I had a bit of a break at the end of that where I wasn't really watching Classic Who anymore because of personal reasons or whatever. But after Galley last year, 
I suddenly was really back into like I really want to dive back into classic Who, and so I I finished the last year of Pertwee's run, which I really liked, but mostly because I love Sarah Jane Smith. But also, I was super like apprehensive and, and not sure if I was going to love the Fourth Doctor. I was a little bit afraid to get into it because how do I phrase this? I don't want to like demonize an entire part of the fan base. So I will say that the fourth doctor's fans are legion and they are mighty. And there are many, many wonderful, wonderful people who are in the fourth doctor Stan legion, whatever I, I, I sense a butt coming. Yeah. I will say that not unlike fans of the Kirk star Trek era, I feel like most of the times that I've been quote unquote, fake geek girled in the doctor who fandom, the person who has done it is someone who probably has a long scarf somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that, so, yeah. Yeah. And I, I hate to say it that way, but I, I think it's just because, especially amongst American Doctor Who fans, I think that the fourth Doctor's era, as you said, is the era that everyone kind of knows as like, that's the Doctor Who they knew as a kid. In fact, it's the first era that really ran in America on a major scale. Like there were some, you know, trickles in here and there of the previous doctors but the fourth doctor on pbs is where almost everybody i know who was a whovian as a kid in america got into the show so it's very nostalgic it's also just a little bit intimidating if you're coming into it new because fourth doctor fans like i've not really met many casual fourth doctor fans you are like into it to the point of knowing every single episode and knitting your own scarves and being able to talk about all of the behind the scenes production details. And it, it can be hard as a new fan sometimes to come into it and go, yeah, no, I watched City of Death for the first time today and then have like five people immediately giving you the whole history of the fourth Doctor era while you're just sitting there going, okay, little much. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to watch a fun story. Can I do that? And I will say, so I was, I had all the apprehension coming into watching the fourth doctor, but I will say that once I actually got into him, I was really, really into it. Like I actually really enjoy his doctor. And I, like that's with all that baggage and fear coming into it. Like once I got into him, I'm like, okay, I'm actually really on board with this. So I have a confession to make. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite doctor. Really, by a long shot. I don't dislike the Doctor, the fourth Doctor, and there's a lot of great stuff there. There is no Doctor that I actively dislike, but there is something that I always found a little off-putting about the fourth Doctor to the extent that, and my wife is the same way, when we were young and we'd find it on PBS and we'd turn it on and there he is sort of boggling his eyes at us from the screen, we were like... He, he he's he's kind of scary. We're out, you know. I'm the the pleasant open face of the fifth Doctor was way more appealing to me. I think that the fourth Doctor's eccentricity can be off putting to a lot of folks, but I also think that that eccentricity is what really gravitates fans to him. What do you think, Riley? Uh, Yeah, I think it's 100% the case. I think, like, you know, right now, if there were any doctor that I would claim was my doctor, it's Peter Capaldi. I just, I love the 12th doctor so much. 
And I feel like a lot of that same apprehension you just described towards the fourth Doctor is what a lot of people seem to apply towards Capaldi when he started his run of the Doctor, because he was very he was very off-putting compared to the kind of warm boyishness of Tennant and Smith. And, you know, he softened a lot as the seasons went on, a series went on, but he very much started as this gruff kind of off-putting, like a little bit awkward, a little bit. Yeah, I don't think people knew what to do with him right away. I think that was really hard for a lot of people to deal with. And I feel that same way about the fourth doctor. The fourth doctor for me is what I like about him. And it's a lot of what I like about Capaldi as well. Like, I feel like, you know, that that speech at the end of of Death in Heaven, when Peter Capaldi just says, like, I am an idiot. I, I muck around. I help out when I can. I'm an idiot in a box. I feel like the fourth doctor is the first of the classic doctors that really feels like that kind of doctor to me. Like I like you know we, we we you guys talked on the show already about how the first doctor is so across the map like you really don't know how to label him right and then you have the second doctor who is kind of the grump kind of like the professorial academic type doctor and the third doctor is just motivated by getting off earth like that's basically his thing but he's also <laughs> he's very charming and very like 60s spy doctor whereas the fourth doctor is the first one where I feel like he's just kind of goofing around the 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 universe i almost said the internet he's goofing around the <laughs> universe being irreverent and he almost has the exact uh, troughton's my favorite of the classic doctors but the fourth doctor has that almost the exact opposite of the ability troughton has whereas troughton would come into a room and play super dumb and kind of aloof and he was really like working on being dead serious and like working on a plan the fourth doctor does the like if you especially see it in like city of death as mentioned earlier where he's talking like he's being very reverent but he's actually like putting a ton of digs and snark into everything he's saying and like it just goes over the head of everybody in the room he also does play the fool a lot in ways that are super irreverent and silly. And like, I was just watching uh, Mask of Mandragora earlier today as I was preparing for this podcast. And there's a moment that he's being held up by a bunch of men on horses with swords. And he's looking through his pockets, pretending to get his papers. And then he just pulls out a toy and wings it around in the air so it makes this noise so he can startle a guard and get his horse. Like, it's just the utter absurdity of the fourth doctor sometimes that he comes into a room and he will he will play the absurd fool for a moment but he can't hold that pretense for very long because he sort of immediately needs to go into i am smarter than every single person in this room and you are all fools so you need to listen to me yes exactly and he's like he's the actual character who can do the move of hey look what's that and then run away from somebody like it happens frequently on the show yes like, like he literally goes what's that and runs away and somehow it's believable that he actually manages to pull that off with people exactly there's something about doctors whose actors are named baker that makes their doctors the biggest thing in the room <laughs> <laughs> it, it does seem to be to those two men yeah yeah, and to be fair, Tom Baker also is a very tall man, so it is like this very like big presence in the room. So, and with the voice to match it, yeah, it's hard. And I just, I really like the stories that are given to him in his era, which I think informs a lot of why I like him. Like, it's just, it's the first time watching Classic Who that I, because I, I am someone who came into the show with New Who, and it's the first time where I feel like the tone of the show feels so much more like what I know the show to be as a modern viewer. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's that blend of especially Robert Holmes and especially Douglas Adams coming in. A lot of what they're bringing to the table is like what I want who to be. And I didn't like Pertwee at first. I came around to him by the end. And I, there's not a doctor I don't like, but I do get a little bit tired of base under siege stories. And so when you have a doctor who's almost his entire run is base under siege stories, I was ready for some more different things. And what I like about there's still base under siege within the, the Baker era as well, but you get a lot of these like more absurd stories like pirate planet, which is ridiculous. And I just love it. I love the idea of a, like a cyborg pirate who yells about sky demons and, and <laughs> just the absurdity of it. And like the Ribos operation, which is a con artist story. Like, I love that we have a legit, like, like, crime heist kind of story in a doctor who story and you get that and you get the like the really weird uh almost modern who seeming like cultural commentary episodes like the Sunmakers. just it just really feels like there's a lot more diversity of story and you get these really horror movie elements especially in its early seasons and then it's combined with the humor of it it just it just all comes together in the way that i like it all to come together in doctor who yeah, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about that era, because as much as Pertwee is still always going to be my favorite of the classic Doctors, you do get a lot sort of broader variety of the stories now that the Doctor can actually travel more in space and time and go to these real far-flung places. I know that the Hinchcliffe era at the beginning of his time is fairly controversial, um, but I loved the sort of horror, darker stories uh, for the Doctor. I felt that that was a time in which they were doing some really fascinating things. Seeds of Doom is still one of my favorite Fourth Doctor stories, um, though I love going back and hearing some of the behind-the-scenes details of, like, Mary Whitehouse writing in and being like, these stories are too scary, they're too terrible for children, and watching it now going, oh, Mary, 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 what would you even think about the modern era of television? This is just <laughs> far too much for you. <laughs> but it's... Yeah, I- I can't imagine her writing about the angels or the silence like oh god no actually i do want to imagine that like mary tell me what exactly do you feel about these stories here are we just like terrifying (laughs) you out of your mind (laughs) yeah and they're so those stories are so fun like the pyramids of mars like yeah it's it's got like that mummy element to it but you also have those ridiculous fun moments of like sarah and the doctor walking in and then just walking right back out of the room before he turns back around like it's just such a great sight gag it is. And, but it, it, it's also, that's one of the stories that scared me the most. Like, I don't easily get scared by Doctor Who stories. And, and that, that final confrontation in that story, and I'm being vague to avoid spoilers for those of you who haven't, uh, yeah. watched the story, cause it's really a moment worth experiencing for the first time, um, is just, it, it was one of those genuinely chilling moments where I thought, oh, okay, bad, scary, would like to like hide underneath the blanket or behind the pillow or behind the couch if I had a couch. <laughs> Just it, it <laughs> there's some really good horror in that time period when they're not afraid to to let kids be afraid. Yeah, I I love when anything lets kids be afraid. Like I think it's just the I, I I as someone who as a child loved to be scared and loved creepy dark things. Like I love that element of stuff like that, which is why I still love Neil Gaiman's work so much. And so th- that era of Doctor Who feels very much like that kind of stuff for me. 
I'm sorry, you said Neil Gaiman, and my whole brain just shut down thinking about Neil, Neil Gaiman writing a fourth Doctor story. Like, how <sighs> good would that have been? Oh, that would have been that would have been great. And you know, you never know. He may decide to indulge in a bit of work for hire stuff to have some fun with it because he's got that Douglas Adams sensibility about him. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, with a little bit of darkness to it, which is what's good for that era of of the Fourth Doctor. Yeah. Uh, so the doctor went through in those seven years so many changes, much like Capaldi did, although I suspect there's much more of a character arc to Capaldi's doctor's evolution than Tom Baker's. How did the fourth doctor start out? What kind of journey did the doctor take until he's on the ground under that radio telescope? That, because I'm still kind of in it, that's one that I'm definitely not as, like, I don't have as depth of a knowledge on that. I've been watching it pretty much in binge mode, so it all feels like kind of like melts together for me as, as like one big presentation. I think, I think the differences in the Doctor for me in this era are more that like you've seen whole generations of showrunners and, and script editors and stuff come and go over the course of his run, which is something we don't really see in a lot of other doctors because there's there's seven years of television here. Whereas with like with Smith and Capaldi and even with like Eccleston and Tennant, each of them only really had one showrunner running them the entire time they were in the process of it, right? Like so you've got, you know, Davis wrote for for nine and ten, then he left and then Moffat takes over for 11 and 12, and then he's leaving. We never really saw what would happen if you took a modern doctor and gave them a different showrunner in the middle of their run. So I think that's a lot of what happens with Baker is that you kind of switch over into this like, you know, Douglas Adams era. And you kind of also have this whole period of time, like the keys of time story where you have an entire season where he actually has one job to do the whole time. I think he also changes a bit because he has such a wide range of companions to yes. play off of. Uh, you know, he starts off with Sarah Jane Smith, originally Pertwee's companion, and he travels with her for a bit. And they have this very sort of light, teasing, fun relationship. And he occasionally plays the serious straight man to her. But they it, it's a it's a much more lighter time for him. And Harry Sullivan comes in and out a little bit, which just gives us the wonder Harry Sullivan is an imbecile moment. Uh, yeah. But he's, you know, he he and Unit still sort of hang around during that time. So it's a bit lighter. There's still some familiar touches. When you get into Leela, it starts feeling a little bit darker, a bit more adversarial, a bit more... Um, a little bit more mansplaining? He has a very Pygmalion relationship where he's just trying to like modernize her and it, it is some, you know, it changes the relationship between the doctor and his companion. It isn't quite so much one of equals. It's a one of one is teaching and molding the other. And then with Romana, it's very much a relationship of contentious equals of she is his equal, if not his superior. And he is not really accepting that. So that yeah. changes a lot of how the doctor interacts with the people around him and by extension, how the audience sees and reacts to him. 
Oh, I totally agree. Like, I, I love the exchanges with, I love the chemistry between, between Tom Baker and Liz Slayton for Sarah Jane Smith. And I, I think that, like, we get this real best friend kind of vibe between them. I think the closest we've had to her before this was the second Doctor and Jamie. Because, like, we just came off of the third Doctor with Joe before Sarah came in. And the third Doctor, Joe relationship is very, like, sweet, but it's very paternal. It's very, like, looking out for her. It kind of reminds me of Capaldi with, with Bill. Maybe a little yeah. bit more of a power dynamic, but whereas with Sarah Jane Smith, we kind of see what we eventually see with Capaldi and Clara, and including the time that Sarah has with the third Doctor, kind of, it's not the same with Capaldi and Smith as it is with Clara, because Clara kind of has that weird flirtiness with Eleven that then goes into like this more best friend, somewhat paternal relationship with the Doctor, with the Twelfth Doctor. We kind of have, with this one, it's more of like a switch from paternalist to more chummy and more friendly and they kind of play off each other and they have these gags with each other and it's just really fun to watch and then with Leela I definitely agree with what you're saying about the Pygmalion elements and the kind of like very like instructing her and disagreeing with her and, and kind of like talking down to her but I also really like what they were trying to do and maybe don't always hit it but I love this idea of and I've heard I've heard Louise Jameson talk about this in interviews too of how Leela is a woman who is made up almost entirely of instinct and she just goes off this instinct whereas the doctor goes off his imagination and his, and his wit and so they have this kind of like brute force character and this like intelligence character and they keep butting heads over what to do to solve problems I think is really really interesting which is why it's fun in the invasion of time where he like keeps trying to like cleverly get her put out of the city. And it takes a couple of episodes for her to kind of figure out what he's trying to do. It takes a while for her to go, Oh, he wants me outside of the city for a good reason. So I should probably trust what he's doing, but it takes a while because she's so like, no, something is wrong and I have to figure it out. Like that's all that's happening. Right. With all of the different eras that the doctor and the companions go through, there's, not quite, as you were saying, Chip, a consistent character arc, but there is still a bit of an evolution with the fourth Doctor and that we get to see him in so many of these different relationships. Uh, and, you know, he, Tom Baker himself seems to is mellowing out a little bit over time um, as, you know, it's seven years. That's a heck of a long time to be doing a TV show on the schedule Doctor Who is running at that point. Um, yeah. But it, there is definitely uh, a bit of a mellowing of the character, uh, which sort of gets us to the place at the end of his run where he's basically prototyping the fifth doctor. He's picked up Nyssa, Tegan, Adric, and it is beginning to be the uh, collection of misfits that uh, is going to carry us into the fifth doctor's era where Davison is going to have like all of these kids in the TARDIS. And oh my God, how did I end up with so many kids in the TARDIS? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. So I must become a kid myself in order to work with these children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we didn't talk about uh, about romana i just want to say like it's funny too because like you know there's also the element of at the time lala ward and tom baker's budding romance that then went sour and you definitely see a lot of that bleed into the screen so when you move from romana one to romana two like that that adversarial equalness kind of somewhat molds in season 17 into like more of a like a very barely contained flirting in a way which is you don't really see again in Doctor Who until River where it's blatant. So that was an interesting twist to the show as well, I think. 
I, I think you, I think my I, spouse might disagree with you on that account, uh, the the tin rose shipper. But <laughs> fair enough, that's a fair point. Yeah, I, I don't know why I didn't say that. Yeah, and also we have the eighth doctor, which is very much clearly you know the eighth doctor and Grace out happens between now and then. So I, I spoke incorrectly. Yeah, but, but uh, with but, Ro- but with but with but with River, it's very blatant. So they are married. Fair enough. So let's get into a little bit of some of our highlights from the Fourth Doctor era. What are a few of our favorite episodes? Because there are literally seven years, I think we can allow for a top two or three stories from his time period. Uh, So Riley, what are your favorites? Well, I think we can just like go ahead and put a blanket city of death out there and not have to like dig into it. Because I think that's the one that everybody kind of runs to. (laughs) Yep. Like, if I had to pick mine that are not City of Death, because that feels super, it feels like saying, like, how should you start watching Modern Who? And then someone's like, oh, definitely uh, Blink. You know, it's like, we get it. Yes. We get it. It's out there. My favorites, I mentioned them already. I really love the Sunmakers, and I really love the Pirate Planet. Like, those are the two that I really get into. And I think it's just because what I love with Doctor Who is... I just love weird worlds and whenever I can get something that just feels a little bit out there and the idea in Pirate Planet of, of this, like I said, this cyborg captain and it's also, I, I cut my teeth as a young nerd on Douglas Adams. So a Douglas Adams-y script in Doctor Who is like my bread and butter. So <laughs> that one is just really, really fun for me. And I also like kind of some of the twists that goes down and who the actual villain turns out to be. And I don't want to spoil any of it and what's happening with the planet for any people who haven't watched it yet. But it's just really, really fun. And it just it's it's a clever story. And the Sunmakers, I just again, that that's a really interesting world. It has some really fun social commentary about capitalism and the villain in that one is very like a weird parody of kind of almost like Ernst Blofeld at some points. <laughs> so that's really, really clever. And then in general, I just I don't know why I like the canine stuff so much, but and I know I feel like a little kid when I get into it, but I just love anything with K9, especially when the doctor just doesn't seem to like K9. Those were always really fun. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah, I totally forgot to mention K-9 as a companion. Please, please don't kill me, Internet. I'm sorry I forgot the tin dog. (laughs) I'm the tin dog. (laughs) Chip, what are your favorite stories from the fourth Doctor? Well, uh, for all of the fact that this is seven years worth of stories, this is actually the classic era that I have actually done the most disservice to, honestly. Because he, the fourth Doctor always felt like the default. I've sort of actually, when I've been looking at classic Doctor Who, I've actually gravitated more towards the other Doctors because I felt like I already knew him. Even though I wound up just sort of dipping into stories here and there. So I am going to be shallow and say City of Death because that's yes that is a default but it's a great story but it's, it's but it's yeah. kind of delightful i'm also rather a fan of logopolis honestly which is not at all a typical fourth doctor story i mean it, christopher bidmead bidmeads it up something something fierce <laughs> and and the silliness of uh let's open up the tardis doors and flood the master out oh look we're on a barge you know that stuff is kind of bizarre, but it is fascinating watching Tom Baker 
with this cloud of melancholy over him as he realizes that he's about to regenerate and it's all almost over. And to see him running and jumping against a master who looks kind of like the classic master, you know, Anthony Ainley's first full turn as the master. So I, I've got a fair bit of affection for Logopolis, but uh, I, 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 lean, I lean more towards City of Death as uh, the delight of uh, the Doctor for me. I think there's something to be said about stories for a Doctor that are kind of against the type of story you normally give that Doctor, because that's when you kind of really get an idea of them out. Like, like, you know, that's why Heaven Sent is so interesting for Peter Capaldi, because it's so unlike anything else we've seen him do. So there is something to be said about that. I, I don't think you're off by picking that one. Yeah. I'm definitely a season 13 girl. Um, if I had to pick some of my top stories, Terror of the Zygons and Seeds of Doom immediately come to mind. I still regularly rewatch Seeds of Doom. It's sort of one of my favorite Baker Slayton stories. I think they have a really fascinating sort of partnership in that story um, and just delightful interactions with each other. And the story itself is just really interesting and fascinating. And it's it's just one that's always been pretty compelling to me. And Terror of the Zygons, I, I think this sort of reveals where my biases are in the classic Doctor Who era, because it, it's a story that still feels very much like a Pertwee story. You know, if it wasn't for Tom Baker being the one running around, I think you could swap in the third Doctor and get a different but still very compelling story. You know, you have Unit coming back. You have an adventure set on Earth with a very, you know, sort of aliens invading, taking over kind of thing. Uh, and I also love the sort of explanation for Earth myths and legends. Like, the Loch Ness Monster is really some Zygon monster that has been hiding out in Scotland. And it also gives us the delightful moment in School Reunion where Sarah Jane just yells, the Loch Ness Monster, which is, <laughs> there's just some just deep fondness for that moment for me. But I also would have to put in my top three, Keeper of Traken. I think that that is a really great sort of story before Fifth Doctor that it really is bringing in some of the elements we're going to see later, but it works very well for that time period. Um, I love Nyssa. I think that this is a fantastic introduction to her. I'm not a huge fan of Anthony Ainley's Master. It's just not one really that resonates with me, but I really like him in this role that you get to see him both as a good guy and as a bit of a villainous figure at the end. Um, that I think that they have a really fascinating dynamic, the group of them together in this. And it's also a very interesting story about the master for me. Um, even though I'm not really fond of Anthony Ainley's master, this is a really kind of uh, interesting story about what the, the master does. And it feels very sort of modern in its approach that what the master essentially has to do to survive in this situation is psychologically manipulate people. And he tears apart this family. And like, it really feels like a precursor to what we see with Sims master, what we see with Gomez's master in the modern time period. And it's, it's just this really fascinating story that there's what's, what's really dangerous is sort of how he is tearing apart this family. Like there's obviously big sci-fi elements involved, but like it's, it's primarily an interpersonal drama. So that I think to me would be sort of one of my top stories. 
I can agree with that because I think also going to that that point you made about the master, like one of the things I didn't like about the Deadly Assassin was that they made the master just this evil, destructive force, and that didn't really click with me based on not only what I've seen of the master in modern Doctor Who, but also even in the Delgado era. Like the Delgado master, even then, felt like he was kind of playing off his friend slash enemy. It was a very like you know frenemy situation and then suddenly just have them just be this evil destructive force I, I never got on board with that yeah it's a little it feels a little off-putting at that moment um it also doesn't help that this is the era of the crispy master uh which is yeah. uh so that can be that can be a little off-putting for people sometimes yeah. Also, uh, worth mentioning, I don't know why I didn't say this earlier in my list of favorite episodes, but I think Genesis of the Daleks, even though if, as an overall story may not be my favorite, but I, I do think it's worth noting how important that those moments with him talking to Davros are as far as like really starting to dig into the morality of the Doctor as we know it today. And especially like yes. when he's faced with the choice of mm-hmm. committing genocide on the Daleks from the very beginning and not doing it. And it's one of those things where it's almost amazing that you know this show had no idea that what, what was going to come in the future. But the fact that there's seeds in this story that Russell T. Davis was able to then harvest for his time war element when he brought it out. Like the idea that he could – these are where the, the tracks are first laid for the time – the war between the Daleks and the Time Wards and why it happened. Isn't yeah. that one of the few moments when the fourth Doctor seems indecisive? or is struggling with something. I don't think of Tom Baker's doctor as conflicted or uncertain at many other times. I agree. Yeah, it's a very unique episode, but it's one that's very introspective. It's one that very much it it asks big questions about is this a morally correct action to take? Is this something that will save lives by doing it? Does that still make it morally acceptable? Or are we setting ourselves up for a bigger, worse conflict by taking this action now? And I don't think it makes him feel so much as indecisive as human, as very much sort of struggling with these questions. You know, the doctor is very much the person who comes in and judges humanity for our faults and flaws. And this is a moment where he has to really wrestle with himself and ask himself whether he can really be the authority on this, whether he does have a moral right and obligation to act when so often it's just assumed. Uh, I think that makes it a very fascinating story. Yeah, and it really lays the seeds for what kind of eventually becomes the core conflict of the Doctor in Modern Who, because I don't really think in most classic Who stories, especially up until this point, you really get a sense of, is the Doctor right or wrong? It very much always feels like something really bad is happening and he has to solve it. There's a revolution happening or there's a, there's a you know, a totalitarian government that needs to be overthrown. Like, that's always the way it runs. It's very rare that he has a moralistic dilemma in his story. Whereas, like, this is a moment where he has that and the decision that he makes will have an impact upon the universe. And as you move forward from Doctor to Doctor, you get more and more of those until you get to the point where the Doctor thinks he's destroyed the Daleks and the Time Lords. And you get all these other things that, that, that you know, where you have at the end of Mummy and the Orient Express where the 12th Doctor has to say, like, sometimes there is no right choice, but you still have to make a choice. And I think that's yeah. a, like, a much more modern conflict for this show. But it does show that it was still happening back then and beginning to happen. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to begin to wrap up here and uh, want to talk about the best way to get new people into Tom Baker's era. Um, what would be your suggested episode, maximum two episodes that you think beginners should start with for Tom Baker's doctor? Riley, let's start with you. I got to go City of Death for this one. I think it's just a really good representation of what Doctor Who is. It has a lot of fun with time travel. Um, I think that the Lala Ward and, and Tom Baker chemistry is so much fun. There's a lot of good images. It's not just the same corridors over and over again. Instead, it's them running around Paris. And I think Duggan is a really, really fun non-companion companion and i love the little jokes they make about him like i love when romana is like let's go back to the chateau and maybe if you can we can punch somebody like there's <laughs> there's such fun humor and it, it's a really interesting use of time travel as a plot device or at least like time distortions and so yeah if it's it's a great doctor who story and it happens to also be a great fourth doctor story chip not robot oh uh, I, I, I actually like robot. I know most people don't, but I actually really enjoyed it. But yeah. sorry. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, I do. I do not disparage you for liking it, but it's just not. It's not my cup of tea, and it's and it's because it's neither fish nor fowl. Uh, it's sort of kind of a third doctor story in uh, fourth doctor's clothing. It doesn't quite work for me. The goofy fake first person footage of the robot at the beginning of the first episode just really makes me cringe. I'd agree with you on City of Death, but I'd say I'd say Pyramids of Mars. That's Ooh. it's really prototypical, I think, for the Fourth Doctor. As as y'all said, there's the there is the horror and the humor mixed together. Those are the two most prominent ingredients in a Fourth Doctor recipe. Is the sort of creepy atmosphere merged with Tom Baker's lightness and humor and this is before the time when i think tom baker began to eclipse doctor who when when we get deeper and deeper into the graham williams stuff he starts to feel like he has an undue amount of influence on the show to a certain extent so period pyramids of mars feels like the sweet spot for me that's true you do have moments later on like uh, like in the stones of blood where the doctor is just like we're Tom Baker was like, no, I'm not going to film that scene. And he just doesn't do it. And so what's written doesn't actually happen on screen because he doesn't feel like it would work. So there's like moments of that as he has more power on the show. Mm -hmm. I think I would have to say City of Death 2. It's actually one that I recommend for people who are brand new entirely to Classic Who, like never seen a single thing in their life because it's one of the most uh, accessible episodes um, and one that feels um, very modern and it is just a fun romp. So I think it's uh, a very good place for absolute beginners to start with and it's actually how I started with Classic Doctor Who. That was the very first uh, classic story that I ever watched. Uh, for people who have some uh, experience with classic Doctor Who, I would actually recommend, though, that they start with Terror of the Zygons, because to me, it feels uh, a very much like a sort of quintessential Doctor Who story, and it is familiar to other eras of Doctor Who. So you get a 
fourth doctor flair on something that I think would be familiar to a lot of people. Um, this isn't exactly a highly stigmatized era of Doctor Who where you really have to talk people into watching the fourth doctor. Um, yeah. But I think if you have anyone who's a little bit unsure about where to start or wants to start with something that's going to be a little more comfortable, uh, Terror of the Zygons would be what I would recommend. All right. Well, Riley, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about The Fourth Doctor. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Um, do you want a jelly baby? <laughs> <laughs> and you're not af- you're not offering it to us in a cigarette case, are you? No. I wish I was. Plain white bag all the way. Yep. Riley, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you today. Thanks for having me. I will see you both at Galley. I'm excited. Two weeks, baby. Two weeks. I'm on, I'm on panels with both of you, so that'll be great. Looking yes, forward it to be. it. You'll get to, if you're at Galley, come see us talk together in person. You will see Alyssa and I probably both getting very heated with people about what is the best season of Doctor Who when we're on the deathmatch panel together. Fight me! <laughs> <laughs> This week on The Incomparable Network. Erica and Steven wrap up their mini-podcast about The Prisoner by completely disagreeing on whether the finale's any good. Check out In the Village. The Hollywood Reporter's Tim Goodman reviews lots of stuff, including Netflix's Altered Carbon, HBO's Here and Now, and Amazon's Absentia on the TV talk machine. And the comic book club is called to order as Jason, Lisa Schmeiser, and Joe Steele take on DC and Wildstorm's character Midnighter on The Incomparable. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this week on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us on the web at ThisWeekInTimeTravel.com or on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. I'm on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time Lord. Alyssa's on Twitter and Tumblr as Hoovian Feminism, and Riley is on Twitter at Riley J. Silverman, and we're on Facebook as well. This Week in Time Travel is hosted by Jason Snell's The Incomparable Network. You can support our show and all of the other wonderful, fabulous shows by becoming a member and ticking the box for This Week in Time Travel at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar, and for Swearhoo for narrating our lives. We will talk to you next week about The Fifth Doctor and a little bit of a preview for the Gallifrey One convention on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.